0: That's the apartment. That corner on the third floor.
1: The apartment belonged to Boston mobster and longtime fugitive Whitey Bulger, then the most wanted man in America. Bulger eluded the FBI for 14 years by hiding in plain sight in Santa Monica, California. Tonight, you'll hear from the agents who finally caught him with some help from an alley cat and his girlfriend's breast implants. We just rushed him. me guns out. FBI, sure. don't move. I
0: asked him to identify himself, and that didn't go over well. He asked me to F and identify myself, and I asked him, I said, are you Whitey Bulger? He said yes.
2: Six years ago, when Arizona needed drugs to execute an inmate named Jeffrey Landrigan, it purchased them illegally from a supplier
3: operating out of this driving school in London. It's my understanding that there was a paperwork issue. Um, the proper forms weren't filled out. Was it used in the execution of Mr. Landrigan?
2: Yes. This office, the state of Arizona, knew or should have known that it was illegal to import these drugs.
3: Bill, I was not the attorney general when that right, happened, but this, and I don't want to uh, use that as an excuse because I think there's but a But this broader- office is, this, this right. is the top legal office. Right.
4: Danny Clinch has photographed just about every heavyweight in the music world—rappers, rockers, country stars, jazz and pop artists. He's developed friendships with many of his subjects, Bruce Springsteen included, which gets him up close and personal access.
5: How are you?
4: Clinch has documented the history of American music, and he's always looking for the next shot.
5: I always want to be prepared. Because you never know who's going to come to your studio.
6: (laughs) I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes.
4: Welcome to Play It, a new
2: podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
7: Charlie and Carol Gasco were an elderly couple who moved to Santa Monica, California, sometime in early 1997, to begin a new phase of their life. For the next 14 years, they did almost nothing that was memorable. And they would be of absolutely no interest if it weren't for the fact that Charlie Gasco turned out to be James Whitey Bulger, the notorious Boston gangster and longtime fugitive who is now in prison serving two lifetime sentences. Carol Gasco was actually Catherine Gregg, Whitey's longtime girlfriend and caregiver. As Steve Croft first reported in 2013, the story of how they managed to elude an international manhunt for so long while hiding in plain sight is interesting. And tonight you'll hear about it from the Gasco's neighbors and from the federal agents who finally unraveled the case with the help of a boob job and an alley cat.
1: If you're forced into retirement with a comfortable nest egg and a desire to be left completely alone, there is no better place than Santa Monica, California. This low-key seaside suburb of L.A. is shared by transients and tourists, hippies and hedonists, celebrities, and lots of senior citizens, attracted to the climate, and an abundance of inexpensive, rent-controlled apartments just a few blocks from the ocean. Places like the Princess Eugenia on 3rd Street, which is where Charlie and Carol Gasco, a childless couple from Chicago, lived for 14 years without attracting much attention from longtime neighbors or landlords. Josh
8: Bond is the building manager. What were they like? They were uh, like the nice, retired, old couple that lived in the apartment next to me. Good tenants? Uh, Excellent tenants. Never complained, always paid rent on time. In cash. In cash. Janice Goodwin lived down the hole.
3: They had nothing, and they never went out. They would never had food delivered. She never dressed nicely.
1: You thought they were poor?
3: Yes, without a doubt.
1: The one thing everyone remembers about the Gasco's is that they loved animals and always made a fuss over the ones in the neighborhood. Barbara Gluck remembers that Carol Gasco always fed a stray cat after its owner had died.
7: She would, you know, pet it and be sweet to it, and then she would put a plate of food, like, out here. Mm -hmm.
1: And what about Charlie Gasco?
7: You know, he always had a hat on and dark glasses. I have to say, it was mysterious to me why a lovely woman like that was hanging out with that guy, that old grumpy man. I never could figure that one out until I heard they had 800-thousand-something dollars in the wall. (laughs) And then I went, oh, okay, (laughs) you know.
1: Money wasn't the only thing found in the Gasco's apartment on June twenty-second, two 2011, when the FBI stopped by and ended what it called the most extensive manhunt in the Bureau's history.
0: Weapons all over the apartment. I mean, weapons by his nightstand, weapons under the windowsill, shotguns, mini-Rugers, rifles.
1: What had started out as a routine day for Special Agent Scott Gariola, who was in charge of hunting fugitives in L.A., would turn into one of the most interesting days of his career. After getting a call to stake out a building in Santa Monica, he notified his backup team with the LAPD.
0: I had four guys working that day, and they said, we got a tip on Whitey Bulger, and I'll see you there in about an hour. And invariably the text will return, who's Whitey Bulger? Really? Uh, a few of them. Uh, I'd remind him, gently remind him who Whitey Bulger was. That he was
1: number one on the FBI's most number, wanted list. Number
0: one. Number one, yeah. Big, big East Coast figure, but <laughs> so on the West Coast, not so much. Imagine any cartel leader. At the Department
1: cops in of- L.A. were focused on gangbangers and cartel members, not some retired Irish mobster who hadn't been spotted in 16 years. But then few mobsters have ever been as infamous in a city as Whitey Bulger was in Boston and his reputation was for more than just being grumpy. Besides extortion and flooding the city with cocaine, Bulger routinely performed or ordered executions, some at close range, some with a hail of bullets, and at least one by strangulation, after which it's said he took a nap. Special Agent Rich Tien, who ran the FBI's Whitey Bulger Fugitive Task Force, had heard it all. Bulger was charged with 19
9: counts of, of murder. He was charged with other crimes. He was a scourge to the society uh, in South Boston, his own community. He was also a scourge to the
1: FBI and a great source of embarrassment to Tian, Special Agent Phil Torsny, and others on the FBI task force. Years earlier, Whitey Bulger had infiltrated the Boston office of the FBI and bought off agents who protected him and plied him with information, including the tip that allowed Bulger to flee just days before he was to be indicted.
9: We really had to catch this guy to establish uh, credibility after all the other issues. And it was just a matter of bringing this guy back to Boston.
1: Toursney, who's now retired, and agent Tommy McDonald joined the task force in 2009. The joke was Bulger was on the FBI's least wanted list. There hadn't been a credible lead in more than a decade. And their efforts in Bulger's old neighborhood of South Boston were met with mistrust and ridicule.
9: Some people, they told us right out front, you guys aren't looking for that guy. People just made the assumption we had him stashed somewhere. I mean, people really thought that kind of thing. Despite that mindset that we're not going to help you,
1: um, the FBI still got it done. It took 16 years. It took 16 years. Yeah,
9: This was not a typical fugitive.
1: The FBI says Bulger had planned his getaway years in advance, with money set aside and a fake identity for a Thomas Baxter. During his first two years on the lam, Bulger was in touch with friends and family, shuttling between New York, Chicago, and the resort town of Grand Isle, Louisiana, where he rented a home until his identity was compromised. After that, it seemed as if Bulger had disappeared from the face of the earth, except for the alleged sightings all over the world. How many of these tips do you think might have been true?
9: Boy, there was, there was thousands and thousands of tips, and I think... Uh, I don't think any of them are true.
1: One of the obstacles was there were really no good photographs of Bulger or his longtime live-in girlfriend, Katherine Gregg, a former dental hygienist. The FBI often noted that the couple shared a love of animals, especially dogs and cats, and asked veterinarians to be on the lookout. There were reports that Gregg once had breast implants and other plastic surgery in Boston, so the task force reached out to physicians. Eventually, they got a call from a Dr. Matthias Donnellan, who had located her files in storage. I was trying to leave the office a little early to catch one of my kids' ball games. And I said, well, listen, I'm going to swing by in the morning and pick those up. And they said to me, "Uh, do you want the photos, too? And I said, you have photos? And they said, yeah, we have photos. I said, we'll be there in 15 minutes. The breast implant lead produced a treasure trove of high-resolution Catherine Gregg photographs that would help crack the case the FBI decided to switch strategies, going after the girlfriend in order to catch the gangster.
0: This is an announcement by the FBI. Have the
1: FBI created this public service announcement.
0: 60-year-old Grieg is the girlfriend of 81-year-old Bulger.
1: It ran in 14 markets on daytime talk shows aimed at women.
0: Call the tip line at 1-800-CALL-FBI.
1: And it didn't take long. The very next morning, the Bulger task force got three messages from someone that used to live in Santa Monica and was 100% certain that Charlie and Carol Gasco, apartment 303 at the Princess Eugenia Apartments, were the people they were looking for. The descriptions and the age difference matched, and Deputy U.S. Marshal Neil Sullivan, who handled the lead, said there was another piece of tantalizing information.
9: The tipster specifically described that they were caring for this cat and their their love for this cat. So that was just one, one piece of the puzzle on the, on the tip that just added up to saying if this isn't them it's it's something we better check out immediately because it sure sounds like them
1: a search of the FBI's computer database for the Gasco's raised another red flag not for what it found but for what it didn't
9: basically like they were ghosts
1: no driver's license exactly
9: no driver's license no California ID like they didn't exist
1: that's the apartment that corner on the third floor on the right-hand side yep by early afternoon, FBI agent Scott Garriola had set up a number of surveillance posts and had already met with yes, apartment manager Josh Bond to talk here. about his tenants.
8: He closed the door, threw down a folder and opened it up and said, are these the people that live in apartment 303? Did you say anything when you saw the pictures? My initial reaction was, holy shit. You're living next door to a gangster. Well, I still didn't really know who he was.
1: But it didn't take him long to figure it out. While the FBI was mulling its options, Bond logged on to
8: Bulger's Wikipedia page. I'm just kind of scrolling down, and it's like, oh, wow, this guy's serious. It's like murders and extortion, and then I get to the bottom, and there's this, this thing. It's like from I, one of his old people saying, well, the last time I saw him, he, he said, you know, when he goes out, he's, he's going to have guns, and he's going to be ready to take people with him. I was like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't be involved in this. <laughs>
1: Bond told the FBI he wasn't going to knock on the Gasco's door because there was a note posted expressly asking people not to bother them. Carroll had told neighbors that Charlie was showing signs of dementia. So we were we were back there. So Gariola devised a ruse involving the Gasco's storage locker in the garage.
0: It had the name Gasco across it and apartment 303.
1: He had the manager called to tell them that their locker had been broken into and that he needed someone to come down to see if anything was missing. Carol Gasco said her husband would be right down. We just rushed him. me guns out, FBI, sure. don't we move.
0: Gave the words, hey, FBI, get your hands up. And hands went up right away. And then at that moment, we told him to get down on his knees, and he gave us, <laughs> yeah, he gave us, a, I ain't getting down on my effing knees.
1: Didn't want to get his pants dirty.
0: Didn't want to get his pants dirty. You know, wearing white and seeing the oil on the ground, I guess he didn't want to get down in oil.
1: Even at 81, this was a man used to being in control. I asked him to identify himself, and that
0: didn't go over well. He asked me to F and identify myself, which I did. And I asked him, I said, are you, are you Whitey Bulger? He said yes. Just about that moment, someone catches my attention from a few feet away by the elevator shaft.
1: It was Janice Goodwin from the third floor coming to do her laundry.
3: And I said, excuse me, I think I can help you. This man has dementia, so if he's acting oddly, you know, uh, that could be why.
0: Immediately, what flashed through my mind is, oh my God, I just arrested an 81-year-old man with Alzheimer's who thinks he's Whitey Bulger. What is he gonna tell me next, he's Elvis? (laughs) So I said, do me a favor. I said, this woman over here says you have a touch of Alzheimer's. He said, don't listen to her, she's effing nuts. He says, "Uh, I'm James Bulger.
1: A few minutes later, he confirmed it, signing a consent form allowing the FBI to search his apartment.
0: I did ask him, I said, hey Whitey, I said, aren't you relieved that you don't have to look over your shoulder anymore and you know, it's, it's come to an end? And he said, are you nuts?
1: But in some ways, Whitey Bulger and Catherine Gregg had already been prisoners in apartment 303, which appeared to be a mixture of the murderous and the mundane. Alongside the weapons and all the money, they had stockpiled the lifetime supply of cleansers, creams, and detergents. The FBI took special interest in a collection of 64-ounce bottles with white socks stretched over the top.
0: I said, hey, Whitey, what are these? Are these some kind of Molotov cocktail you're making? He goes, no. I said, I buy uh, tube socks from the 99-cent store, and they're too tight on my calves. That's why I stretch them out. I said, why are you shopping at the 99-cent store? You have uh, half a million dollars under your bed. He goes, I had to make the money last.
1: It's been said that one of the reasons it took so long to catch Whitey Bulger is that people were looking for a gangster, and Bulger, whether he liked it or not, had ceased to be one.
9: He said it was hard to keep up that mindset of a criminal, and that's part of the reason he came down to that garage. It was hard to stay on that edge, that criminal edge, after being on the lam as a regular citizen for 15 years.
1: The master manipulator gave credit to Catherine Gregg for keeping him crime-free, hoping it would mitigate her sentence. She's now serving eight years for harboring a fugitive. On the long plane ride back to Boston, Bulger told his captors that he became obsessed with not getting caught and would do anything to avoid it, even if it meant obeying the law. Whitey Bulger's biggest fear, they said, was being discovered dead in his apartment, and he had a plan
9: to avoid it. If he became ill and knew he was on his deathbed, he'd go down to Arizona, crawl down the bottom of one of these mines, and die and decompose and hope, hope that we would never find him and still be looking, at, looking for him forever.
2: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. In July of 2014, Joseph Wood was strapped to a gurney in Arizona's death chamber His execution by lethal injection with a new cocktail of drugs was supposed to take about 10 minutes. It took almost two hours, the longest execution in U.S. history. As we first reported last November, when lethal injections were introduced in 1977, they were supposed to be a more humane form of capital punishment. Instead, the process has become a messy testing ground for unproven toxic drugs. At the heart of the problem, Pharmaceutical companies have banned the use of their drugs for capital punishment, partly under pressure from death penalty opponents. Without access to the lethal agents they've used for decades, the states are turning to new, untried drugs, and that's creating an execution crisis in America, making it harder and harder to ensure that when a state decides to end a life, things don't go horribly awry as they did in the execution of Joseph Wood. Arizona is one of 31 states to employ capital punishment. Cameras aren't allowed here, but this Department of Corrections video takes us inside death row, where more than 100 inmates are awaiting execution by lethal injection. On July 23, 2014, it was Joseph Wood's turn. Wood had been convicted of murdering his former girlfriend and her father. At 1.52 p.m., Arizona executioners began pumping an experimental combination of drugs into Wood's veins. They had never before used these drugs for execution, but they expected Wood to die within minutes. Among the witnesses that day were Deacon Ed Schaefer, Wood's attorney Dale Baish, and reporter Michael Kiefer.
10: It
9: seemed to go as normal. They put in the uh, the catheters, Uh, they announced that they uh,
6: uh, were administering the drug, and he closed his eyes and went to sleep. And about 11 minutes in, I noticed his lip quiver. And a minute later, um, he gasped. A few seconds later, he did it again, and then again, and again, and again. It was loud. It wasn't just, you know, some nice, peaceful sleeping sound. Were you thinking at this point
9: something's gone wrong? Everybody was thinking something went wrong. You could see the, the looks on the faces of the people from the Department of Corrections who were who were standing along the side.
6: You know, they were looking at each other nervously. You tried to have the execution stopped. While Joe Wood was on the table gasping and gulping, um, we were arguing to a federal judge that he should stop the execution. On what grounds? That it wasn't working. I actually said about... Four rosaries, four complete rosaries, and there's five decades
3: uh, to each rosary. And uh, each one can take
2: anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. And that told you that this was going on for a very
9: long time? Hour and 58 minutes. That's a long time to be sitting there watching somebody die. Before the federal
2: judge could rule, Joseph Wood was dead. It was supposed to take just one dose of the drugs to kill him. Prison logs show before it was over, executioners had injected wood 15 times with the new cocktail of drugs.
6: Someone made the decision to inject 14 additional doses of that drug into Mr. Wood. That's not something that has ever been done before, so they were making it up as they went along.
2: In several rulings, the Supreme Court has reaffirmed the Eighth Amendment. Punishment must not be cruel and unusual. Joseph Woods' lingering death set off alarms across the country and prompted an independent investigation in Arizona. Was Joseph Woods' execution botched?
3: Well, Bill, I think botched is a very inflammatory word.
2: Arizona Attorney General Mark Bernovich told us he sees nothing wrong in the way Woods' execution was carried out. It took almost two hours. That's we, the longest execution
3: in U.S. history. At the end of the day, though, the independent report, the medical examiner all concluded that Mr. Wood was sedated the entire time, was unresponsive to stimuli, and he was feeling no pain whatsoever. How do you, and know, how do you know that? Well, obviously, what, what, were the there
2: sensors? Was anybody taking brains? You know, how do you know he wasn't well, feeling pain?
3: Ultimately, you can't know because the person's dead.
2: So if two hours isn't too long, what is three hours? Would that cause alarm? Well, four hours. I I
3: think two hours, three hours, four hours. When someone's on the death gurney and they're unconscious, I don't think they're they're worried about the time. In this instance, it happened to take longer, but that does not mean that it was botched. Um, We know what would you
2: what would you call it?
3: I would call it that. You had somebody who was, a, who was a heinous killer that murdered people in cold blood and eventually received justice.
2: There's no dispute of Joseph Wood's guilt. In August of 1989, Wood, a 31-year-old vet addicted to methamphetamines, walked into this auto body shop in Tucson, Arizona, shot and killed his former girlfriend, Deborah Dietz, and her father, Eugene Dietz, in cold blood in broad daylight. Richard and Jeannie Brown remember that day well.
8: You actually saw Joe Wood kill your sister-in-law? She's saying, no, Joe, don't do it, don't do it. And he shot her anyways. It was one of the worst days of my life. In 40 seconds, Eugene Dietz and Deborah Dietz were dead.
7: And my mom looked at me, and she walked up and gave me a hug, and she said, your dad and sister were just killed.
2: You witnessed his execution? Yes.
8: What was that day like for you? That day was one of the best days of my life because he finally got it.
7: Everybody can say he went inhumanely. It was a horrible death. I wonder if we were all sitting in the same room and if we all saw the same thing because he went peacefully. And my, I'm sure my dad and my sister did not go peacefully.
2: This is a murderer. He committed a heinous
6: crime. Why worry about his last two hours on earth We're not medical doctors. We don't know whether Joe would experience pain. But what we do know is that under the Constitution, uh, there cannot be cruel and unusual punishment, and there cannot be a lingering death. I witnessed other executions by lethal injection, and I had never seen anything like that.
2: Lethal injections were supposed to be a civilized step up from the brutality of electrocutions and the spectacle of public hangings. Former President Ronald Reagan described execution by lethal injection as just like
10: falling asleep. I just think that the whole idea of using drugs is foolish.
2: Alex Kaczynski is a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which covers the West, including Arizona, where Joseph Wood was executed. All right. Kaczynski was appointed to the bench by President Reagan and is one of the most prominent conservative judges in the country. He is in favor of the death penalty but is opposed to lethal injection.
10: The state of Arizona and other states want to make this look like it's benign, want to make it look like, oh, it's just a medical procedure. They ought to just face the idea that this is cruel and this is violent and they ought to use some method that reflects that. Well, we used to do all kinds of things to kill people. We used to have the electric chair. We used to have the gas chamber. We used to hang people, even publicly. Many people were executed by electric chair, but then it was switched away from that because it was thought to be something that caused pain.
2: So that's why most states moved to lethal injection.
10: And as a result, those people who strongly oppose the death penalty moved to stop the flow of drugs that are available for execution. So now states have to scramble for ever more exotic drugs to try to uh, carry out the death penalty.
2: Pharmaceutical companies also grew alarmed that drugs developed to heal were being used to kill, and they refused to sell them for use in executions. The U.S. government now prohibits the import of the drugs we found 15 states have begun to improvise their own lethal concoctions. The result? A number of bungled executions. In 2014 in Ohio, convicted murderer Dennis McGuire gasped and convulsed on the gurney for 25 minutes before dying. In Oklahoma, Clayton Lockett, convicted of rape and murder, was administered an untested combination of drugs. He struggled violently, groaned and writhed. A witness later said it was like watching a person being tortured to death. Prison officials moved to stop the execution. But Lockett would die of a heart attack 43 minutes after the drugs first entered his veins. Lockett's execution prompted President Barack Obama to call for a wide-ranging federal review of executions.
6: What happened in Oklahoma is deeply troubling. In the application of the death penalty in this country, we have seen significant problems.
2: Most states have laws making lethal injection the only option for executions. With the drugs now unavailable, we have found six states have skirted federal law and turned to black market dealers to get their hands on them. Six years ago, when Arizona needed drugs to execute an inmate named Jeffrey Landrigan, it purchased them illegally from a supplier operating out of this driving school in London on customs forms obtained by 60 minutes the state claimed the imported drugs were for animal use we asked the current attorney general mark burnovich if those drugs were used for the landrigan execution the importing of the drug that you were trying to use for his execution was uh, illegal it's it's against us law
3: for that drug to be Imported. It's my understanding that if there was a paperwork issue. Um, the proper forms weren't filled out. Was it used in the execution of Mr. Landrigan?
2: Yes. This office, the state of Arizona, knew or should have known that it was illegal to import these drugs.
3: Bill, I was not the attorney general when that right, happened. But and I don't the, want to use that as an excuse. because I think there's a broader, this office, is, this, this right. is the
2: top legal office. Right.
3: And all I can assure you is that as long as I'm attorney general, we will follow all state and federal regulations and all state and federal laws when it comes to obtaining and using the drugs in the executions here in Arizona. After our interview,
2: newly released documents revealed the Arizona Department of Corrections once again purchased banned execution drugs abroad. Federal authorities seized the illegal
3: imports. Arizona now is trying to get them back. We execute individuals not because we want to or we get some sort of bloodlust out of it. We do it because we feel like we have to. And we will do everything we can to make sure that they're killed in the most efficient manner possible.
2: The death penalty in Arizona has been blocked by a lawsuit since the problems with Joseph Wood's execution. The state is fighting in court to
10: resume capital punishment
2: by lethal injection.
10: I would eliminate the entire controversy. I would use a bullet or a series of bullets. They're fast, they're effective, nobody ever survives. Go back to the firing squad. Make it look like an execution. Mutilate the body, and this would express the sense that that's what we're doing, that we're actually committing violence to another human being. I I read that you have even thought the, the guillotine might be a good way to execute. Oh, yes. Really? The guillotine works, never fails, it's quick. It's effective. You do know what that sounds like, hearing a a judge sort of be
2: an advocate for the, the guillotine. Tell me. Barbaric.
10: Death penalty is barbaric. And I think we as a society need to come face to face with that. If we're not willing to face up to the cruelty, we ought not to be doing it.
2: podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment and more. play it at
8: play.it
4: In March of 1999 an up-and-coming photographer named Danny Clinch got two phone calls that changed his life. The first came from Bob Dylan's manager asking him to take some pictures of the legendary singer. and a few hours later, Bruce Springsteen's people also called to book him for a shoot. In the 17 years since, Danny Clinch has photographed just about every heavyweight in the music world. Rappers, rockers, country stars, jazz, and pop artists. As we first reported in February, he has a knack for being in the right place at the right time for the right shot. And he's developed friendships with many of his subjects, which gets him up close and personal access on stage and off. For example... Hey!
5: Hello. Danny. How are you doing? How are you?
4: Good. Bruce Springsteen hitting the road on tour once more his wife Patty by his side and Danny Clinch is there to talk a bit about old times
5: in 99 was the first time I photographed you guys and it was there Yeah.
4: Yeah. and shoot the band rehearsing clinch has taken thousands of pictures of Springsteen and many have become classics
5: this isn't a farmhouse that's on Bruce's property it's just a really sweet little spot
4: there are portraits of the artist off stage that mirror the tone and the message of his music and there's the famous shot of Springsteen falling back into the crowd where from the stage, Clinch had a perfect view.
5: And I was like right in there, and he fell back, and I got my shot. And,
4: and you kn- did you know you got it?
5: I felt like I did, yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: Clinch wears many hats, pun intended. As the official portrait photographer at the Grammys, he covers the musical spectrum. Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga.
5: I'm not like a strong-arm guy. I want to collaborate.
4: Country star Miranda Lambert.
5: You want to make people relax
4: singer-songwriter Sam Smith.
5: You want to find a common ground as quickly as you can.
4: Foo Fighter Dave Grohl and Paul McCartney.
5: You're, in a sense, part of the history of that moment, and I never really get tired of that, and I never take it for granted.
4: You want to go up on stage? Uh, yeah. He goes way back with many musicians. That's Trey Anastasio of the band Fish, one of several that let him shoot on stage, trusting him to stay out of the way. (laughs) It's New Year's Eve, Fish is playing Madison Square Garden, and to the crowd, clinch is the invisible man. What is it about shooting a concert? What are you trying to get?
5: I'm trying to capture a moment. It's not about the singer at the microphone. I'm trying to look for like a moment in between.
4: He works from the back of the stage. Hiding behind the drums or the amplifiers, waiting for that in between moment, popping up like a whack a mole to get his shot. And sometimes over the years, it's paid off big, as in this classic photograph the view from the stage of Foo Fighters Dave Grohl and a cast of thousands. It kind of still gives me goosebumps. Or this one at a Pearl Jam concert Eddie Vedder and Jeff Ament airborne.
5: I popped up from behind Jeff's amplifiers. Mm-hmm. The whole stadium was lit there up in the air in that perfect moment.
4: You were hiding behind an amplifier. Yeah. Do you wear earplugs? I should. But you don't?
5: <laughs> I often don't.
4: I'm surprised you can even hear me. Yeah. <laughs> or are you just <laughs> reading my lips?
5: <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I get out there and I'm like, geez, I should probably have some earplugs. And I'm like, <laughs> I forgot them.
4: Learning the ropes, Clinch was an assistant to photographer Annie Leibovitz prefers shooting in natural light, and agrees with what the famous war photographer Robert Capa said, if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough. And even when he's not working, he's still looking for that perfect shot.
5: I'm photographing all the time. I just, I'm just i such a visual person, and I, I don't
4: want to miss that moment. You're never without your camera? Rarely. Even right now, sitting here? Yeah. Just to prove to people your camera's you right see, here. I
5: always want to be prepared. Because you never know who's going to come to your studio. <laughs> <laughs> I really like this one a lot. This was, um,
4: His studio is a place where any music fan would love to be locked up for a few days. It's like a history of rock and roll. Right? Yeah.
5: Just, I want a couple things I want to show you. So we'll show these over here.
4: A couple of years back, he photographed one of the men who started it all. Chuck Berry, who's now 89. And another founding father, Jerry Lee Lewis, who's 80. And here are some pictures from that first session with Bob Dylan.
5: We were trying to figure out, you know, give him a little something to do, and uh, somebody came back with a whole bunch of different language (laughs) newspapers, and he picked that one up, and uh, I started to shoot just, you know, keeping it real simple.
4: More of his greatest hits. Southern Gothic, Greg Allman on a rainy day in Savannah, Johnny Cash waiting to go on stage, a shot capturing the loneliness of life on the road. Country stars Faith Hill and Tim McGraw, Tom Waits, Nora Jones, Tupac Shakur.
5: He was really professional, and he was into it. We chose a shirt that he was going to change into. He took his shirt off, and I saw all the tattoos, and I said, would you mind doing one like that?
4: He said, yeah. When you took this, did you know how strong it was?
5: I mean, I felt like this was really a powerful image. I felt like the simplicity of it was really powerful.
4: Clinch has branched out into making commercials and music videos. This one shot in Willie Nelson's bedroom on his tour bus.
1: You give your hand to me, and then you say hello.
5: Willie doesn't mind me taking his photograph, but he's not really crazy about sitting and being directed and all that sort of stuff. So I've found ways to, um, to work with that.
4: He also got some very candid stills, Nelson braiding his hair, and indulging in his favorite recreational pastime, smoking a huge stick of weed. I I don't even know what it would be called it so big. I know, it's something... It's it's like a cigar.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I can't remember what happened after that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But you don't know me. And then there are the occasional shoots he wishes he could forget.
5: I was at a Madonna show Mm. many, many years ago, and I was like in the sweet spot and she came out and she was just like, I mean, it was the best part of the show and I was shooting, 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 and I'm like, God, I must have shot a hundred pictures. Has I not, have I not run out of film? Uh. And I opened the back of my camera and there was no film oh, in there. No. So that happened to me only once.
4: Ouch. <laughs> no doubt one reason he gets along so well with musicians, he knows the language yet another hat to play with the Tangiers Blues Band, sometimes jamming with the likes of Willie and Bruce. His harmonica, like his camera, goes everywhere he goes. He grew up on the Jersey Shore, living in Tom's River, a few miles down the Garden State Parkway from Springsteen Country. These are some good ones. He got the photography bug from his mother,
5: She always had a camera, always still has a camera. And at times I find myself taking pictures of her, taking pictures (laughs) of the family.
4: And from his father, he got a taste for classic rock and roll from the 50s and classic cars. His prized possession, a 1948 Pontiac Silver Streak, the sort of car his father always noticed when Clinch was a kid.
5: Everywhere we went, he would go, oh, there's a 55 Chevy, and oh, you know, look at that 1959 Cadillac. And I started to love cars myself.
4: And he's always found a way to work them into the shot. Springsteen with the Pontiac, and in his wife's 1950 Hudson with Clinch's father at the wheel. An old Cadillac with Neil Young's hat, and Young inside, tooling around Nashville.
5: This was a great moment for me. I'm a big fan of Neil's driving around in this Cadillac.
4: Was he driving? He
5: was driving, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: And we stopped at a
5: little little intersection and I grabbed it.
4: But nothing could prepare him for the trip he made in December to the old car capital of the universe, Havana. Cuba, Havana, it's got to be a photographer's dream.
5: I'll tell you, there's so much interesting culture and there's so much great color. Everywhere you look is, is a photograph.
4: You seem to have a smile on your face kind of all the time. Yeah. Yeah. The Preservation Hall jazz band was invited to a Cuban music festival, and Clinch tagged along with a documentary film crew. They played the traditional music of New Orleans, a distinctive sound and some distinctive instruments. <laughs> You do a lot of rock and roll bands. You always see a lot of rock and roll bands with a sousaphone. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. The rhythms of New Orleans and Havana are much alike. and The Americans were soon jamming with Cuban musicians on stage... at their homes.
5: You don't need to speak Spanish, you know. You just need to speak music. It's a good couch.
4: Between concerts, Clinch wandered the city, snapping away and checking out the cars.
5: I'm not just a fan of the really restored ones, the shiny ones, but I like the working man's cars, the how they had fixed it, how it had been repaired time after time.
4: But his biggest thrill came backstage with the band warming up.
5: They were preparing for the show, and it just turned into this impromptu jam, like this percussion-type thing, and uh, I live for those moments.
4: He's seen a lot of moments, heard a lot of music, and has come to one conclusion.
5: It doesn't matter if it's hip-hop. It doesn't matter if it's jazz uh, or anything in between. If it hits you right here, it's
4: good music. And you can get a photo out of it. You can capture it. So far, yeah. (laughs) Writing in Clinch's notebook, Tupac Shakur said, if a picture is worth a thousand words, photographers are worth a million. It's a thought shared by Clinch's fellow native of the Jersey Shore, who says,
5: (laughs) "Thanks, man. man
4: This is the man.
5: (laughs) If you want the picture, (laughs) come and get it. There he is."
8: I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.